0: the point of that is that humans react to stories and to situations where you can empathize with someone way more than we react to analysis, data, and statistics. And as we do our advocacy for outdoor recreation, I think that might be the most important lesson to keep in mind is tell stories that inspire people that reach across divides that reach across the tribalism And and that calls us to empathize with each other. That's how humans change their minds.
1: Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. Episode 131 features Luther Probst. Luther was a keynote speaker at the 2023 International Trail Summit. Luther has been decades ahead of most in the way that he views the benefits that outdoor recreation and trails can bring to communities. Luther is a former IMBA board member and current board member of the Outdoor Alliance. Andy was a founder of the Sonoran Institute, a Western states conservation nonprofit that has the mission to connect people and communities with the natural resources that nourish and sustain them. Luther provides insight like no other during this conversation. Cooley Creative is a title sponsor for this episode. They design and build custom websites as well as help companies with branding, photography, and e-commerce. Cooley Creative was started in Wisconsin, but is now based out of Bend, Oregon. Jared from Cooley Creative is a friend of mine. We've traveled together on multiple mountain bike trips and sometimes he sends it. For more information about Cooley Creative, head on over to www.dujussendit.com. Yes, that's right, www.dujussendit will get you to the Cooley Creative website, so check it out. A huge thank you goes out to the multiple people who have placed orders for Cattle Mountain Apparel and Trail One components. This support definitely does not go unnoticed. I hope you are all enjoying the products that have been ordered. When you use the links found under the affiliate section at the Trail Effect website, a portion of the proceeds will help fund the Trail Effect podcast. Bonus, use the code TRAILPOD when checking out for a 20% discount on all Kettle Mountain apparel and Trail 1 components. 230USA has come on board as an affiliate for the Trail Effect podcast also. If you are familiar with rooftop tents and overlanding, 230 likely has been on your radar. Check out their affiliate links on the Trail Effect podcast website and learn about the well thought out designs that 230 has to offer. Now on to the Trail Effect with Luther Probst. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have Luther Probst. Luther is a natural resource lawyer and land use planner by training. He is the founder and former executive director of the Sonoran Institute. The author of multiple books, including Bouncing Nature and Commerce in Gateway Communities. He's a former board member of IMBA. Anyone that has listened to this show for any period of time knows exactly who IMBA is. He's a current board member of the Outdoor Alliance, correct? Yes, Sure. And he's a current Teton County commissioner, which for those that are aware, that's where Jackson Hole is in Wyoming and a whole lot more. How's it going today, Luther? It's going just great. How about you, Josh? It's going good. It's sunny and 70 here in Wisconsin. And that means we're going to get some great mountain biking tonight after work. Excellent. We're finally uh, drying out here and
0: uh, mud season's coming to an end and the trails are beginning to open. So life is good.
1: Let's get your backstory. We're going to, so we're here to talk about Luther did a a keynote presentation at the International Trail Summit, but we're going to get the backstory on Luther first so we can kind of build up to that keynote presentation. Great. But from what I could tell in the research I did, you started out on the East Coast, but then went West. How did that happen? And why did you choose to go into land use planning and law?
0: Well, great, great couple of questions. I was raised in North Carolina in a mill town outside of Charlotte. Uh, I couldn't get out of there fast enough. And um, I always had a, uh, I just had a thing for the West. I can't really explain it. maybe it was National Geographic magazines, but when I was in high school, I went with a couple of my high school friends and we did a month long tour of the west and um I knew that that was like reading the table of contents of a book that i was I was going to spend the rest of my life exploring the West and I've been very lucky to have the chance to do so. I lived in Tucson for twenty some years, been here in Jackson for um eight or ten years, and um West is just my home. I'm lucky that I've been able to um, to hang out and get to know um, much of it from
1: cycling, from paddling, climbing mountains, um,
0: from you know
1: everything in between. Yeah, and you're into all sorts of different outdoor recreation activities, as you just described. Do you have a Do you have one that you gravitate to more than others?
0: Well. Um, yeah, that's one reason why the Outdoor Alliance is is close to my heart, is that it kind of combines several different outdoor recreation activities. But you know, of course, mountain biking, and then this time of year, paddling. Nice thing about living in Jackson is that you just have seasons. You know, obviously ski season, and then all those whitewater eggs hatch and turn to to water, and they fill the rivers, and you've got a paddling season, and then the dirt trails tend to dry out about the time of that, and so. You've just got a different series of things to do year round. We're lucky to have that.
1: From what I could tell, you are decades ahead in terms of the space of outdoor recreation and land planning. And you wrote a book titled "Nature and Commerce for Gateway Communities." Let's talk about how you got to that point so far ahead of so many other people.
0: Yeah, good question. I appreciate that sentiment, Josh. When I finished, law, well, I went to law school in Chapel Hill. Went to uh, graduate school, got a master's in regional planning, and I was always interested in this connection between, between wildlands and wildlife and communities. And those are the two things that have kind of driven me from a, from a personal and a professional perspective. It's why I kind of wound up as a county commissioner of all things. But um, when I finished uh, school, I went to work for a large law firm for a few years uh, in in Hartford, Connecticut. And um, we worked all over the country, helping communities make just, you know, create and enact zoning ordinances, helping landowners, especially marinas, kind of navigate those. And then um, I didn't really like being at a large law firm. It kind of crushes your soul. And so I wound up going to work for World Wildlife Fund, you know, the panda. And I had worked with them some in, in, in my job at the law firm. Uh, took a job there running one of their domestic programs called Successful Communities or Creating Successful Communities that was about how, to, how communities, counties, and cities can plan uh, to protect wildlife more effectively. And so we were working on you know wildlife migration and buffer zones and things of that sort. And um, when it was time to leave D.C. and move west, I started the Sonoran Institute with the idea of helping communities all over the west you know, just identify their vision for the future. Think about what they wanted to do about it and how to get there. And so, um, it's been kind of a natural progression of um, of working with communities to um, to better plan, protect what they value, create great communities where people can walk and ride bikes, and not just be stuck in a single occupancy vehicle torpedoing down the road. And and that's also, um, you know, one of the most important things that communities can do to protect what they value is, uh, is trails and open space, whether it's a little pocket park or whether it's access to surrounding national forest. Uh, it creates a great community, and it's also um, good for individuals, as, you know, as we all know, and, um, and it's also good economically. Increasingly, rural communities, especially in the West, but now all over the country, like in, in your neighborhood of the Great Lakes states, are realizing that you build trails all of a sudden, a brew pub pops up, and then all of a sudden, it's easier to attract nurses and doctors to your hospital and attract professionals to your firms and attract businesses and so forth. And that is, that's is—that's the great kind of um, under-realized advantage of, um, of, of, of trails and open space and crags and um, whitewater parks and things of that sort is that it really helps your economy in ways that that communities really value, like the ability to attract nurses and doctors and other highly skilled people, school teachers, firefighters, and so forth. So my whole life's always been at that intersection of land use planning, community
1: quality, and and conservation and outdoor recreation. You mentioned the Sonoran Institute. Let's go into that just briefly to kind of bring people up to speed on what that is and the work you did there. Great, great. When I was at
0: World Wildlife Fund. You know, I mentioned we were working with wildlife conservation, and when it was time for me to leave, um, they provided some funding for me to start the Sonoran Institute, and our premise was that we would work all over the Western United States following the model that World Wildlife Fund uses in developing countries. In developing countries, if communities and the nearby protected areas aren't, in, aren't simpatico with each other, it just doesn't work if If you've got a community in um in south in southern Africa where the elephants come out of the park and destroy a garden, people go hungry and elephants are shot and so that that um synergy and that compatibility is just essential in the United States it's kind of in some ways just some ways more difficult because here the challenge is 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 one from wealth, not poverty, and none of us get that excited about you know, some poor baby boomer that wants to play golf next to a national park. It's just not quite the same. But those are the problems that we have is from is from, you know, the attraction of these wild areas for retirees, for remote workers and and um, people with second, third, fourth, fifth homes here in Jackson, you know, fourth or fifth in too many cases. Uh, and so we started the Sonoran Institute with the idea of bringing to the Western United States, That idea that we get more effective, more enduring conservation when the people who live nearby and the people who manage our wild areas work together better. And so that's been a lot of what we do. Working with the community, what's your vision for the future? How do public lands fit into that? How does water quality fit into that? How do rivers fit into that? Trails and so forth. And I I ran Sonora and I founded it with some other folks. Nowadays, I just say I founded it because all the people I worked with were older than me and they've passed away. So I'm the only one left standing. I did that for about 22 years, was ready to move to a place that had more snow and left Tucson for Jackson and moved up here and um, somehow got uh, elected to the county commission.
1: Yeah, that was, you know, we're going to get into that in a little bit, but. Yeah, Jackson's an, Jack, Jackson's definitely a very interesting community. Before we move on to that, through all of this, you're also a board member at Imba, and and that's a former board member, but you just recently stepped off that board. But you're also a board member at the Outdoor Alliance. Let's talk about those two organizations quick and how they relate to everything we're going to talk about moving forward.
0: Great, two organizations that are really close to my heart for sure. Kind of a funny story when I I joined the Imba. I'm sorry, the Outdoor Alliance board, which I joined first. Uh, at that time, I was doing some consulting as part of Sonoran, and mediating and, and helping people with strategic planning. And um, the Outdoor Alliance was just transitioning from kind of a coalition of several outdoor groups, in groups like American Whitewater and Imba and um, the Mountaineers and, and several other groups. And um, so I did a strategic planning session for them for how they can kind of cohere and come together as an organization. And um, my friend, Brady Robinson, at the end of it, we were having a beer together. And he said, what's our big problems? And I said, you know, Brady, your biggest problem is your board. It's terrible. Your board is a bunch of people that work for other organizations and can't take the time to raise money for Outdoor Alliance. And his, ad, and his response was, well, if you're so damn smart, why don't you join the board? And so um, that's not exactly how the conversation went, but it's close enough. And so I was delighted to join the board and got to know the folks at IMBA and join that board. You know, not because of my prowess on a mountain bike, but because I was pretty familiar with the, the, the Bureau of Land Management, the Forest Service, the public land agencies, the, the laws that govern those lands. And so serving on both boards was great. I really liked the IMBA board where you come, you have a board meeting, and then Pretty strict rule that you spend a day riding. And what a great way to get to, you know, ride trails all over the country and 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 learn new places and um do some great riding. And then we would always rally at a brew pub somewhere and have dinner. It was um it was fun. Outdoor alliance is fun too, but it's fun to have to kind of know you're gonna ride um as part of the board meeting.
1: Yeah, that's always that's always something I think sometimes we forget when we get into this line of work or get into the outdoor spaces. We, we're into it because we're so passionate about it, but then we end up working so hard that we forget about why we got here, right?
0: Josh, don't get me started on that, but you're exactly right. And, you know, the older I get, the more I value the times, you know, like at Imba board meetings. Because, you know, riding's great, but riding with friends is really great. And um, uh, now when I travel, I try my best to... Um, take some time off and get out. You know, like, like you were saying earlier, I just spoke at the International Trail Summit in Reno, um, played hooky one day and did a gravel ride down to Pyramid Lake, which was a great experience. And I, I never would have ridden that particular series of trails and dirt roads if it hadn't been in Reno for that conference.
1: Yeah. When I went to Reno for that conference, I joked that I just changed jobs and actual careers. Uh, We won't go into that, but. I was taking a vacation from my former career to go to that conference. And so I had to build it, which, which was a Wisconsin DOT. So I laughed that I'm at a conference that federal highways is involved with even, and I'm there on vacation, (laughs) but on my way home, I made sure that I set aside a handful of days to stop in grand junction and Fruita just to ride. Bingo. Yep. We've got to do that. Well, speaking of that conference, you know, you, you kicked off the first day as a keynote speaker and the title of your conf or the title of your, your talk was trails, community development, and advocacy. You know, for those that got to witness that in person, it was clear that you have a really good knowledge of politics and outdoor recreation. And if I'm being honest, like I didn't know who you were before I saw that keynote and within five (laughs) minutes of you starting that keynote, it was like, I have to get this guy in the podcast because he hits like all the topics that I've been interested in, in terms of sitting, sitting through city council meetings, county board meetings, all the meetings that you go through to get approvals and stuff that you have to deal with to get trails actually put on the ground. And so I thought it'd be super awesome to get you on this podcast to talk about that presentation.
0: Great. And I really appreciate that. And and like you're alluding to, I don't know a thing about building trails. You know, the, the conference is um, uh, America Trails and the International, I'm sorry, the um, Professional Trail Building Association. And- you know, I was a little nervous about speaking to trail builders. I don't know a thing about building trails, but, you know, as everyone knows, to build a trail, you got to get the permission and you've got to get, you know, the official permission from the Forest Service or the BLM or the other agencies or state parks or, or um, you know, increasingly we see county parks and, um, and flood control lands and so forth. But so you've got to get the permission and you also have to get you know, what I sometimes call the social license, you know, the, the community support for it, because quite often neighbors don't want trails. I've never seen anybody carrying a television on their shoulder while they're riding a mountain bike. But people seem to think that's what's going to happen, that they stole out of somebody's house in the neighborhood. You know, when I, if I'm going to steal a TV, I'm going to use the car, not the bicycle. But that's a digression, Right.
1: It's a perfect uh, so, digression, though, just to be clear, because I've heard the stories. <laughs> yeah, it sometimes blows my mind, but it happens. <laughs> right. Yep. So um. So yeah, great
0: great opportunity to speak, and 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 you know the theme of my talk is really important, which is that we have to engage in the political process.
1: Yeah, you know, it's for me more important, more increasingly has been the local municipalities because I live in the Midwest. We don't have, I don't have, I mean, there is some national forests up in Northern Wisconsin. I don't, where I live, it's basically state funded, county funded, or, you know, local city property, but it's, man, some of the stories you you hear at the fear tactics that you just kind of alluded to are, are kind of crazy sometimes. Like I've, one time I walked out of a meeting, I was wondering when I was going to see purple elephants walking down the road because like, it was just the stuff that people were throwing out was obviously comical, but yeah, yeah.
0: Sometimes it gets bizarre, but people get worked up. You know, that's why it's so important to have, you know, our 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 trail clubs, mountain biking clubs. It's, it's great when it's not just mountain biking. It's great when hikers, mountain bikers, and dare I say horseback, you know, uh, horse people, um, horseback riders are all able to cooperate on the trails advocacy because there's a lot of just natural barriers just to, you know, to have a place where there's a trailhead, to have the lands to use, especially like you say in the Midwest where there's less public lands. And then, you know, I'm impressed by a lot of places I've ridden, but one, and if you haven't been there, you should go right there. It's Bentonville, you know, in northwest Arkansas, where quite often the trails are in just a little slice of um, land that, that's owned by something like the local, um, uh, local ditch agency or local flood control agency. You know, it doesn't take a lot to be able to put a trail in, especially when you have the um, the momentum to, um, you know, the political momentum to make that happen. And that's why it's so important that, um, you know, that we support EMBA in OA and D.C., where they can secure the funding and make sure the federal agencies are on the right path. And also at the local and state level where you get state parks open. You know, it wasn't that long ago that you could barely ride in state parks. And now, you know, Kirk Gowdy in Wyoming, Dead Horse Point in Utah, some state parks have some great riding. And then, um, you know, my goal, like Emba's big emphasis now is more trails close to home, is that, you know, I just want more and more people to be able to ride out of their garage. And it doesn't have to be, you know, super scenic. Just a, um, Just a, you know, a, a track through the woods can do it. And again, that's where the local trail clubs are just so critical, whether it's a mountain biking specific club or like I said, you know, a club that kind of brings all the trail users together. Because it it pains me to see when the trail users are fighting amongst each other. You know, yeah, we have differences, um, but we um but you know, it's all about the trails.
1: Yeah, for sure. And you know, my first trip to Bentonville would have been in well, would have been during not. Because of, but during the International, uh, the Imba Trail Summit in 2016. And, you know, I rode the back 40 trail system on that trip for the first time. And to me, and I've told this story before, so this is other listeners of this show have probably heard me say this. But to me, when I crossed, it was probably the second or third road crossing with the rapid flashing beacons. When you're riding the back 40 through people's backyards, essentially, I was like, the dream is real. Cause this is something that I've always dreamed about for my own community where I live, where it's kind of transitional rural and urban, but there's larger tracts of land and a lot of space between houses on the outskirts. Right. And so you can do what they did at the back 40. Now I will say once I dug into how the back 40 came to be, I was a little disappointed to find out that they got all that access because of the common space with the property owners association. Cause my first thought was how did they get like basically? I don't know a thousand easements.
0: <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah, you know. There's always a story, and it's uh, it's always a challenge, but somehow you piece them together.
1: Yeah, I will say, like on that first ride, I came across uh, it was a husband and a wife and a young child, and the young child was on a Strider bike. And I asked them because I was really interested in this then as well. I said, "How? What do you think of this this trail? Like, what do you think of this whole trail system? This is my first time out there." And they're like. This is incredible. You know, a year ago, we could not go out our back door and really use this woods because it was just woods. But now we can go out here with our son and actually get into the woods responsibly and not get covered in ticks or whatever else, right?
0: Well, and Bentonville is a great story that explained, you know, that kind of is a good example of what I talked about in my talk in Reno. I feel like they developed that extraordinary trail system for two reasons. One is that two of the Walton family members, Tom and Stewart, are avid mountain bikers and they're, they're very strong riders. And so they had a personal interest. And then two, um, it goes back to that rural economic development. Walmart wanted more people who work for their suppliers to live in Bentonville. You know, certain suppliers over a certain size had to have a person there and people would just fly in from Atlanta or Dallas you know on monday morning and work until friday and leave and so they were like well how can we make this place more attractive they created some great uh, you know a great museum some great downtown restaurants and guess what trails just like the 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 couple you were mentioning that um that that come to bentonville for work and um and then they decide they really love it and that leads to economic diversification bentonville's unique that way but it leads in all communities to um to a more prosperous economy being able to attract those highly skilled workers, those executives in companies that, that sell to Walmart. And then, you know, instead of leaving their family and their kids in Dallas, they bring them to Bentonville and, um, schools, things to do outdoors in a great downtown. They've, they've done it.
1: Yeah. Let's move West. Cause one of the, one of the key points you had during your presentation was, was uh, declining resource extraction, which is probably a good thing, but how the outdoor, how outdoor recreation can positively fill that void responsibly.
0: Yes. Well, and that's certainly a, a two-edged sword, as you know. You know, one, we've been told that the resource economy is declining. It's definitely consolidating. There's more communities that are left behind. You know, we're now on the edge. We're, we're about to see a big boom in that because of the new so-called clean energy minerals like lithium you know, that we need for electric cars and e-bikes. And so, you know, more and more communities are, are former mining towns. And it's clear that you know, we, we know so many examples um, where outdoor recreation fills the void. Think how many ski towns, not Jackson, but certainly most ski towns in Colorado started as mining towns. And as a land use planner that can't seem to avoid that, I still wonder why is it that 19th century copper mining companies were better at creating towns than we are now since the end of World War II? you know the the Crested Butte's and the Durango's all these towns that were based on mining they have great downtowns you know you get out and walk or you ride your bike and we can learn from that but that's a digression for another day um but covid has really demonstrated how important and you know things are going to level off now that covid's over but as more people were were you know in a big city you know they weren't socializing with others so many decided to To Bail and move not just to the Jackson holes. And you know, they they certainly ran the price of housing up here, which is a real negative, but moved to all sorts of towns around the West, increasingly towns like Grand Junction and Fruta that aren't really at the top of that list, like Sedona and Moab and Jackson and Crested Butte. And it's kind of neat to see. I, I was recently down in Del Norte, Colorado, in the San Luis Valley a town that had kind of been completely disinvested for decades. And um, we drove through, headed over to Durango, and a town that had been almost empty was now making a major comeback. And a lot of that was the trails, it was mountain biking and hiking, and also people that, that had been in Salida, which you know, was 20 years ago in the same position, a, a mining town that had now switched gears. Um, but land, you know, the price of a house in Salida went up, and a lot of the locals looked around and said, "Let's go to Del Norte." Things are still reasonably priced there, and um, as they as they go, they um, I didn't ride any trails in Del Norte, but I could tell from the vibe that that was what was that that was a big part of the um, of the storyline. But so yeah, you've got the, the the ski towns and the Sedonas, but you've also got the Salidas now that have become destinations of their own. And, you know, frankly, a great place to live, a moderate sized town and um, great riding is a big part of that. Riding are, are hi- you know, and hiking, bird watching, And then there's a few places like Salida that have great mountain biking and a great river uh, story as well. And rivers are just wet trails.
1: They are. They are. That's, that's exactly it. Two of the communities you had in your presentation were Hamilton and Bozeman, Montana. Do you want to elaborate on that?
0: Bozeman is, um, Bozeman's kind of got it all in some ways and suffering in, in, in many ways as well. Bozeman is, um, you know, as everybody knows, Montana State University, a major college town, uh, a ski town with Big Sky. I always try not to call it pigsty. People take offense at that. Um, at Big Sky. And then the locals hill up at Bridger. Bridger's a terrible place to ski. Don't go there no matter what if you're in the neighborhood. I'm being facetious there because Bridges is a jewel, but um, you know, Teton County, the the price in Jackson Hole, the price of houses just go up, 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 and it's kind of crazy now. But that happens because, and we don't have as much growth as a result because Teton County is 97 percent public land. We're hemmed in. We're surrounded by the public lands. That's a great thing, in my opinion. But it means that if you can't live here, it's a it's a harrowing commute from Idaho or from down Alpine South. You have to go over the Teton Pass, which in the winter is is scary. And, or you have to come up the Canyon, which is also avalanche prone. Bozeman on the other hand is in Gallatin County. Gallatin County is 50% public land. And around Bozeman is just square mile after square mile of flat agricultural land, that is very easy to serve with water and sewer and put houses up. And so Bozeman's just booming and it's booming for for a variety of reasons, but it's got good air service because it's proximity to Yellowstone. So it's easy to visit. It's got a, a university, as we talked about. So that attracts both the university personnel, but it also creates that community that's only university towns have. And I think probably most importantly, it's got that um, complete suite of outdoor activities, skiing, downhill skiing, backcountry skiing, cross-country skiing, mountain biking, road biking, paddling, fishing, the whole thing. And so it's just booming in a way that leaves many newcomers very happy. You know, Bozeman beats the hell out of Dallas, um, but that leaves many people who have been there and seen the changes, you know, somewhat embittered at the um At just the pace of growth and the pace of change. And old Bozeman has a lot of character. New Bozeman, I I don't have to go out on a limb to say, not much character. You know, pretty much just, uh, you know, chain restaurants. It's like the old Flintstones, you know, where he's driving the car and it's just the same three buildings over and over again. Kind of what, you know, the outskirts of Bozeman look like. And then you've got towns that And Hamilton's a good example. Plenty of other places could be an example. But you've got towns that kind of have the same amenities, the same recreation opportunities, but just haven't capitalized on those. And I look at a great example. I didn't use it in Reno. But, you know, 30 years ago, Grand Junction, Colorado, there on the West Slope, and um, Rock Springs Wyoming were pretty similar. You know, they were both resource extraction communities. Grand Junction, because of its proximity to uh, I-70 and not that far from the Aspen area, you know, greater Aspen, Carbondale and Glenwood Springs and so forth, has just boomed and it's become a new West economy. And it, it, as you know, great trails around there and great road riding and great um, river rivers and hiking and mountaineering and everything, or not mountaineering as much as rock climbing. On the other hand, Rock Springs has a lot of the same attractions as Grand Junction, but they haven't chosen to capitalize on it. We drive through Rock Springs going down to Gates of the Door, and the country south of Rock Springs just begs somebody to put in trails for mountain biking. Uh, and it's got a it's got a great downtown, architecturally, but it just hasn't seen fit to capitalize on those assets. And um, you know, just a a difference in how the ability to convert from a resource extraction economy to kind of a diverse modern economy based upon services depends both upon your amenities, but probably more important is the vision of someone in the community to make it happen. And in so many of these communities, usually it's outside of government, but it's somebody who has a vision that we can be, um, you know, fruit is a good example. I can't remember the name, but just a. A couple of folks just started putting in trails and one thing leads to another. Moab's a great example. When the coal mines left, a uh, rim cyclery, you know, a couple of former miners opened a bike shop and, you know, the mountain, the, the, the mountain bikers and the motorized people, you know, kind of learned to coexist. I don't want to sugarcoat that. There's been issues for sure. And, um, you know, when I'm riding there, I'm a rider. I'm not into the other, to the motorized stuff, but there's room for both. There has to be. And so quite often what's overlooked is that kind of human aspect of a community making that transition.
1: Just for a perspective, I, I'm not familiar with Rock Springs. What's the roughly, what's the size of Rock Springs or community that you're talking to? I'm, I am familiar with Grand Junction, obviously, because we talked about that. Oh, I'd have to look that up. But uh, if I had to guess, I'd say 20,000 or so. Sounds good. That's kind of what I was thinking when you were talking about it, that it's big enough to have, you know, some, some bigger, I'm going to say, Chain store is probably a bad example, but have amenities that you need in a community.
0: Right. And it's right along the interstate, so it's easy access, surrounded by BLM lands, great wildlife, could be the next Fruta or Grand Junction, just require somebody with that vision to make it happen. And maybe they don't want to be that, and that's, that's their choice, not mine and yours, for sure.
1: Yeah. And when I was in Grand Junction, I was fortunate to stay with, with a couple of locals there that were, I don't know. Three quarters of a mile away from the Lunch Loops trailhead. You know, so just perfect garages or trailhead scenario for me to stay at. And I'd asked the guy that I was staying with, I said, Hey, like, what are your thoughts on Grand Junction? Cause he moved there. So he, just to put this into context, he lived in Steamboat for a bunch of years, lived yeah. up in the Whistler area for a bunch of years, and lived in, we're going to say Salt Lake slash Park City area. And he, he thought Grand Junction was still kind of, hasn't totally been found yet and was thankful for that in terms of like housing prices and whatnot.
0: Totally. No, that's for sure. And you know, a lot of that is that um is, is Grand Junction's not a ski town. And the the ski, a good ski resort just warps the housing economy of communities. And that's the flip side is that um, you know, I frequently talk about how trails and outdoor recreation can provide economic prosperity. A certain amount of that is great. When it goes overboard, arguably Jackson, Wyoming, Aspen, Colorado are some of the worst examples. You wind up with some really dysfunctional problems. You know, the Teton County, where I'm on the board of commissioners, has the greatest wealth inequality in the country. You know, as they say, people tend to have either three houses or three jobs. And, you know, increasingly we have big houses that sit empty. That's another way to crush your soul. And people, you know, whether it's the Ski patrol or the, or the ski lift operators or the school teachers or the nurses that have almost impossible to live here. And that's why more young people are living over in, in Victor and Driggs, Idaho, which has its own amenities as well. Fantastic community in terms of skiing and mountain biking and hiking and horseback and so forth.
1: Yeah, it was funny. You just jogged my brain when I was in, I was in Park City last year for a summit and- a buddy of mine, I texted a buddy of mine letting him know that I was there. And he's like, yeah, you won't really find any homeless people there. And I responded, I go, yeah, but you'll find a lot of people as homes. Yeah.
0: Right. A lot of people as homes. Exactly. Right. Yeah. That's, that, that creates its own set of challenges. And, you know, in a place like Jackson is tough because on the one hand, we are working to create more opportunities for the workforce to have housing. On the other hand, the lure of growth, of just market growth, of of, um, of 10,000 square foot empty homes, of, of luxurious uh, short-term rentals or apartments, probably more than offsets the benefit that we're providing by investing in housing for the workforce, just because we wind up with more housing for the workforce, but then more jobs. Because believe it or not, empty homes create a lot of jobs as well. But now we're off on another tangent, right? Right.
1: Yeah, well, actually, I wouldn't mind staying on this tangent just for just a little bit because I know sure. we're going to go to the tangent of you being a county commissioner there for Teton County, and right. from what I could tell, one of your initiatives is to help figure out a way to create more housing for for staff, and not that high income housing, but the housing that people need to live in to serve people.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's um, there's there's kind of three issues that just dominate everything in Jackson. The first is housing for the workforce, you know, not just, I mean, cr- it's critical to have housing for, you know, for the county employees, for example, deputy sheriffs, firefighters, for the hospital employees, for school teachers, um, for bus drivers. But it's also critical to have houses for the people that are just part of the community, that um—that um, that, that run the ski resort in the in the winter, that plow the roads, that serve coffee in the coffee shops and so forth. And so that balance is critical. Housing And then the second issue is just growth. And in my campaign, the big issue was one side, which I don't subscribe to, takes the position that if we would just build more market housing, it would solve the problem. Well, the fact is, if we build more market housing, we mostly get wealthy retirees, second and third homeowners, and highly compensated remote workers. You know, that person who's an architect or a uh, or a day trader or a tech investor or whatever who could live anywhere. And so building market houses just digs our hole deeper. And we know that, but there's also a lot of money to be made in market housing. So there's a lot of interest in promoting that. And then the third issue is the social services. We're the wealthiest county in the country per capita, but that skews towards the 20 or 30 billionaires who live in the community. And I mean that seriously. And and those people who are um, here trying to scrape together a living run into huge challenges with social services, with mental health, and it's exacerbated. Perhaps 25% of this county's population are um, people who were born in Mexico. And they're unwilling to take advantage of the social network in many cases. many are, Many won't go in the emergency room if they're hurt and they are the backbone of this community in many ways and yet it's very challenging for them to find a place to live and to get by just on the on the salaries that they have so you wind up with two families in one in one home or one apartment and, and things of that sort and so yeah there's a it's gilded but there's a really challenging underbelly to all of that and the challenge for you know for communities everywhere is um to constantly kind of strive towards that right balance of not you know of avoiding economic decline, providing amenities that people find attractive. And, and again, education trails are about the top two, um, and not overheating that economy. And here it's overheated because one of the limited land bases I talked about, too, you know, without sounding too um you know, I don't want to sound wrong on this, but it really is a pretty cool place to live. And then three, where where it often loses me is Wyoming uh, is the best state in the country for preserving wealth in terms of our state taxes. And that's because of the coal industry, which has funded the state. And um, if somebody wants to move here to ski, to fish or whatever, I think that's great. If they move here because they just don't want to pay taxes, you know, on a personal note, that's just kind of like not what I'm looking for. It's not, um, I mean, it's their business, but I don't want our public policy to encourage people to buy a home here or buy a house here, all at home. They're only here several weeks a year and they're just making our situation worse and they're undermining our community. And I don't like the idea of Jackson being a tax haven. Yeah. Being an attraction because it's a tax haven.
1: Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, there's a fine balance there. It's like, I mean, you can almost, it's, you can almost compare that to, uh, having not enough recreation and having too much recreation right exactly right
0: well and also um like i mentioned the reason why wyoming is the um is the best state in the country for preserving wealth and why so many people want to move here for that reason is the coal industry that has paid the bills for so long and what's ironic is the coal industry in wyoming was completely created by the clean air act of 1977 that made it so that burning Low sulfur Wyoming coal was, was um, better for our air quality than burning coal from the Appalachians. And so the coal industry was created by federal regulations, but we can wrap our head around that some, one, one of these days.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't personally think of Wyoming as a coal state. I think of exactly what you just said before that, which is the Appalachians, the, you know, the, the West Virginias, the, you know, Ohio yeah. and Kentucky and places like that, right? Wyoming mine's a lot
0: more coal than all the others, and it's all on the surface. So it creates a big mess, and it's also um you know, just cheaper and easier to get to. And so the mining, and then it goes to a power plant not too far away. And you know, this is another one of those dilemmas, but you know it keeps our lights on. It allows our our zoom calls to work,
1: yeah, exactly. But now we could go into solar and wind energy, but let's stick to trails, right? Let's stick to recreation. And let's pivot back to recreation. Yeah. Another slide that you had is a comparative advantage in rapidly changing economies. And we've kind of hit on that. That's kind of been peppered in throughout all of this conversation. But let's go deeper on that slide.
0: Yeah, good good question. When I was at Sonoran, we did what we called a worker attraction study. We interviewed hiring managers and HR directors at high tech or at, 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 at firms that require highly skilled workers hospitals especially the 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 medical you know the the surgery centers and such the defense contractors the technical companies the the um computer companies and so forth we interviewed those leaders and we asked them what it, what is it your workers are looking for and and first they're highly trained engineers and healthcare workers and so forth one most were from out of state and had moved there and um it was a kind of a complicated analysis and we can follow up with the details if you wish. But um, what came out of it is that people, those highly skilled workers that keep the hospitals working, that provide the foundation for those, the economy in Tucson and Phoenix are attracted by climate, which, you know, without going into a macabre joke about climate change, you can't really influence climate, not, not at a community level, education, which is very expensive to influence, but which is critical. And then the third most important was outdoor recreation. And outdoor recreation was way more important in the eyes of those human resource directors and hiring managers. Trails and bird watching and hiking significantly more important than sports like tennis or golf, significantly more important than spectator sports, you know, professional football. And you can. Make a joke about the Arizona teams. Nobody wants to go watch teams that lose, but they've done better lately but um the 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 trails were were significantly more important than those factors that are often associated with economic diversification and the lesson from that is that, yeah, you want trails that supports brew pubs, obviously it supports tourism, and that can be important. it supports in many cases. You know, like a a, a a bike shop and so forth. But the big argument, the sleeper argument, is that it supports the ability to attract those workers that really are necessary in a you know in a modern economy. And I'm not talking about just highly compensated people, but nurses, for example, and all healthcare workers, school teachers, people with those credentials that are hard to find. And so, um. I'd, I'd like to see more research done on that. It's hard to find much, but it's a, um, it's a really important argument in support of outdoor recreation. And anecdotally, we all know that. You know, we've, we've all known people that move to a place because they're, you know, an engineering nerd and they love mountain biking or, or paddling the surf wave in Grand Junction or, or I'm sorry, in um, the surf wave in um, Glenwood Springs. And that's, that's the economy of the future. Don't have to like everything about it, but it's a fact.
1: Yeah. And another point that you had, which you're going to weave this into the infrastructure side of things, but was, is persuading new allies to support trails. And where I'm going with this may not have been what you intended in the, in the presentation, but I know you can speak on it, which is a lot of times, at least in my community or people I've spoken with, they talk about marketing, like what we currently have for trails or what we have for outdoor, we'll just say outdoor recreation, right? But what they failed to to hit on, and I've seen exactly one chamber of commerce that actually gets this, and that is actually supporting access in the building of trail and outdoor recreation infrastructure versus just marketing it. And that that was the chamber of commerce in Wausau, Wisconsin, which rallied to get a plan put forth in a state park. You know, so many times you hear about this is what we have, how about we hear about how can we make what we have better or even get what other people have in terms of access and amenities for uh, outdoor recreation infrastructure?
0: Boy, Josh, you've nailed it. I mean, that's a, that's a you're, you're right on target. And, um, you know, a couple of thoughts. One is quite often chambers have, you know, chambers, uh, the chamber of commerce in many communities is like a lot of organizations. It's kind of a loose affiliation of warring clans. You know, you've got the tourism-based people, then you've got the construction-based people, and they kind of barely get along, but they're all under this umbrella of the chamber. And um, you know, my experience with that is my short advice, and I'd be delighted to follow up on this, but my short advice is your outdoor recreation coalition, whatever it is, they you know, it's different in every community, but that coalition has to go to the chamber or go to the faction in the chamber that supports them and kind of bring them along. Rarely are they going to do it on their own. But if you bring them along, they will often become a great ally. And um I think you're right, more communities need to realize that marketing's great. You need to do that, but you also need to um make sure that you're enhancing and providing stewardship for what you're marketing. And we often don't do that. And that takes us right back into, you know, my day-to-day job now, which is which is land use planning you know building some ugly soulless structure of whatever sort you know strip mall or 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 whatever only degrades your ability to attract both the workers that make your economy work and and visitors and second homeowners and so forth so um you know there's an argument for making sure that as we plan and develop that we're doing it in a way that uh, that creates a great community instead of that just kind of pulls the life out of the community and, you know, the chambers are um, more, you know, some more are coming around, but it's really hard for a chamber of commerce to get the consensus from its board that with tourism, we might want to focus on quality instead of quantity that it's, you know, that it's better to have somebody stay three or four nights instead of one night and other factors like that. And that's again, where, um, you know, there's, there's, this whole kind of, history and tradition in mountain biking particularly but also all outdoor sports you know that we're dirt bags you know you've all heard the story that you know those folks come to town and they've got a twenty dollar bill in their uh in the pockets of their cutoff jeans and a week later they they haven't changed either one of them and that's just not true people uh you know skiers mountain bikers hikers bird watchers spend money you know increasingly um you know, come to do stuff during the day, and then they want to go out to eat and stay in a hotel room, and so um, it, it is an important economic aspect, economic element. We're kind of having that battle here locally with the um, travel and tourism board, the organization that 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 spends the money from a special lodging tax. In the past, they really focused on just promotion, promote, 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 and It it, you know, more people kind of concluded that the place was too crowded. Even many of the people in the chamber, many hotel owners were like, you know, the Four Seasons up at the Mountain Resort can't sell rooms if it's a two-hour drive in traffic to get from the airport to the hotel because of congestion. And so they're now beginning to, um, the Travel and Tourism Board that allocates these lodging tax funds are now working to balance the promotion with stewardship. They just made a million dollar grant to the uh, Friends of the Bridger-Teton National Forest to have an outreach program for people who come and camp on the forest. You know, just have an ambassador that talks to them about you know, put your fire out, don't leave your toilet paper and your and your number two mess, you know, on you know, in the campsite. Those kind of things, and um, it's a great investment in the long term. And I do wish that more chambers. And more destination management councils, you know, the people that manage tourism would think about how to balance that promotion with enhancing the resource, building trails, grooming cross country ski tracks in the Northlands, those kind of things. Uh, I think great investment.
1: Yeah, you just kind of went down the maintenance path with grooming, and that's something that definitely is a reoccurring theme that needs to continue to happen within. Within the activity, I don't really want to go down that rabbit hole too far with this, but you also reminded <laughs> yeah. me of uh I don't I don't have the numbers straight on this, but the city of Duluth at one point took a fraction of a percent or a fraction of that room tax that you were just talking about to put towards trail development and trail building. You know, to to build the Duluth Traverse. And that that is an example of a town that was kind of, you know, there's a people that know Duluth or have been around long enough know that there's a billboard that said. The last one out, don't forget to shut the lights off because so many people are leaving that community years ago. Yeah. Well, and Duluth is a great example.
0: I haven't been there in years, but a great example of making that transition from, from a resource extraction economy. What was, was it um, iron or iron ore or copper or something? I don't,
1: I don't know for sure. but I, I, I'm assuming a port for iron because there's a lot of iron mining yeah. in that region of Minnesota. And now it's become
0: a great destination. And, and, and it's got kind of the whole, you know, the whole thing, including um, you know, kind of ice climbing parks and everything you can ask for, for, for year round recreation.
1: Yeah. Before I wrap up this part of the presentation, you had a quote or a statement that says, act with humility and restraint. You want to go deeper on that? Well, I appreciate that. That's a great, a great discussion.
0: And I, I went into this in, in my talk in Reno, and it's really important to me that we have to acknowledge that even something that many of us really value building trails um using the outdoors uh, you know climbing on a crag that both for for tactical reasons you know to 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 build more support more broader support and because it's the right thing to do that we have to recognize that there are restraints there are constraints there're limits and we've we've done that you know you you go to a a hotel, and if it's got the sign up that says no vacancy, or you can just say no, it's pretty clear you just you, there's not room for you. That doesn't mean anything other than it's full. And um, you know, when you read history, 200 years ago, that wasn't the case. They just kept people piling in, and you'd have how many people in the room or whatever. And we do that with theaters. And um, the outdoor community has long accepted those kind of limits with river trips. I mean, imagine the Grand Canyon if there were no limits. It would not be an experience that most of us would value. Uh, and not just the Grand Canyon, but, you know, all sorts of river trips and, and backcountry campsites. And more and more, I think it's important for the outdoor community to recognize that there are, there are limits and that we have to acknowledge those. And sometimes we have to say, well, maybe I need to go tomorrow instead of today or, or maybe, um, you know, for, uh, in, indigenous, Religious reasons we need to not go to this place for a period of time. I think it's really important for us to do that. I, I commend the outdoor community because we, we, we generally have as a community spoken in that regard, whether it's wildlife closures or just the the visitor experience. And the other thing, and we all see this on trails, just treat each other well. You know, we've had some big fights over e-bikes here and boy, we'll do another day on that one, but you know, I've got a friend who's 83, and and he's out on an e bike, and he's going no faster than anybody else um, with the e assist. But he he's uh, it, it extends his ability to get out, and um, you know, I think that that's a good thing, and I think it's something that all of us for accept that, you know, if we're lucky, one of us, or one of we're all gonna, if we're lucky, we're all gonna be 83 one day, and if I'm out crushing it on an e bike on a mountain bike trail, an e uh, e mountain bike. I hope you'll wave at me and say something nice instead of acting like I don't belong. We all have to recognize good trail behavior, say hi to each other, and recognize that one day we might be a hiker, another day a mountain biker, but we're all in this together.
1: Yeah, for sure, that's that's super important. And to the point of the e bike, you know, it was a couple weeks ago I did a ride with a a doctor that just retired here, where I live, and he's he's I think he's seventy, and he was on a, a light powered e assist road bike and you wouldn't know that he was on that light powered e-assist road bike unless you could spot that he was on it because he didn't ride like he you know he's was, he was able just to just integrate with the group just like everyone yeah. else yep obviously he was super happy to be able to do that and everyone else was happy to have you know him along right yep and that goes
0: across the different sectors and um and we've all just got to get along and recognize those um recognize those limits and the answer is build more
1: trails within within reason right with (laughs) with humility and restraint yep (laughs) build them in the right place with this i have usually have a couple questions that i ask everybody or almost everybody for sure one of them the the people that i know have a good answer for it but one of the questions is you've done a lot of things and doing a lot of things definitely does not come with, a, I'm going to say, without failure or without learning and missteps. Is there a famous failure that doesn't necessarily, when I say that, it doesn't have to like be in like the front news of the newspaper, but something in your mind that was like a key moment of like an aha moment that you learned from that you can share with the listeners?
0: We, we so often go into meetings with our mind already made up. And um, so often that's tribal. It's like, you know, my side versus your side. And um, as mountain bikers and as and as all outdoor recreation enthusiasts, it's increasingly important for us to kind of learn to to really listen. And and I was asked, when did you ever change your mind during a county commission meeting? Yeah, that was a good and one. It, it, well, it, it was a good question because it's not data, it's not it's not analysis, it's that human connection. And the the time that that became really clear to me was. Um, when a, uh, a woman with a young baby uh, has the baby with her and starts talking about what matters to her and to her child and to the intergenerational aspect of things. And um, the point of that is that humans react to stories and to situations where you can empathize with someone way more than we react to analysis, data, and statistics. And as we do our advocacy for outdoor recreation, I think that might be the most important lesson to keep in mind, is tell stories that inspire people, that reach across divides, that reach across the tribalism, and and that cause us to empathize with each other. That's how humans change their minds, not from more statistics, even economic data. It's all about how we interact with each other. And those stories is... the. Stories are the the common denominator.
1: Yeah. And that was a, that was actually a critical part that we didn't hit on earlier that I really wanted to hit on. And and so that was, that's perfect. With that, I always ask this to everybody, at least every mountain biker that I've had on the show. What do you, what do you personally, personally look for in a trail community? What do I look for in a trail community? Personally, not, you know, just like if if you're going to travel or say you had to move for whatever reason, like what are the things you're looking for?
0: You know, for me, it's, um, it's, uh, I'm a jack of all trades in terms of my outdoor sports. And so it's the ability to see how the seasons change and your activities change. I, you know, I, I typically count the days between my last fat bike ride up Cache Creek, you know, on snow to my first day of riding a mountain bike, you know, a real mountain bike on dirt. And, um, so uh, the, the seasonality, the changes are important. That and a good local brew and a good brew pub, those are the, those are the key aspects right there.
1: Do you have any uh, closing comments or words of wisdom you want to leave us with or people you want to thank? Obviously, I think your list of people you want to thank could probably go on for about three days.
0: <laughs> well, I really appreciate the... Um, I encourage everybody to go to the International Trail Summit next year. I think it's in Wisconsin. Is that what I read?
1: 2025. It's coming to Madison, Wisconsin. So, yeah, they're going to do it there. 2025.
0: Put it on your calendar. Great event. Very inspiring. For me, it was the um, first big conference I had been to since COVID. And it was just great to be in a room full of people of like mind and people that are doing great work, you know, to create a outdoor recreation culture for this country and for communities in this country. So yeah, I encourage
1: everybody to, to, to keep that in mind. I'm if I'm not mistaken, you actually like stuck around for the whole conference, correct? Like you didn't I just, did. you yeah, didn't I just come to, into um, your speech and fly out. You actually like took it in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm into that stuff. And, um and like I said, I played hooky one day and did a nice gravel ride, but yeah, I'm, uh, it was good. Good to be there.
1: Well, Luther, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day and everything that you have going on there in uh, Teton County, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This has been incredible. And I think a lot of people gain some value from this show. And so thank you very much. Josh, thank you for having me. Thanks for doing the program. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Fact podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. If you listen to Trail Fact on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please don't forget to leave a rating interview, as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Fact podcast. Also, don't forget to check out Cooley Creative at www.doodjustsendit.com. For additional ways to help support the Trail Effect podcast, check out the affiliate links tab on the Trail Fact website, where you'll find links to Cattle Mountain Apparel, Worldwide Cyclery, Trail One Components, and now 23.0 USA. By using the affiliate links found at www.trailfectpodcast.com, a small commission will come back to the podcast, which helps keep this thing going. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. Thank you again for listening.